Turn with me this evening to the 79th Psalm. been many hymns of testimony and praise in our request this evening. We come here to read a hymn, read a psalm. Well, it is, well, it's closing verse, it's closing word, really, if I can believe one of the commentators, is the word praise. And yet, there's a lot that precedes that word. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph, as we continue to work through these psalms of Asaph in our Psalter. O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of heaven. The flesh of thy saints unto the beasts of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. O remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants which is shed. Let the sighing of the prisoner come before thee according to the greatness of thy power. Preserve thou those that are appointed to die. And render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. So we, thy people, and sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his inspired word. And let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight it is our privilege to be gathered with the saints. We come and rejoice to be able to lift our hearts in corporate praise, to be helped in the privacy of our own hearts with the gathering together of the saints and rehearsing together, being reminded of the gospel together, being strengthened together, that we might go forth helped in the tasks that lay before us. And Lord, we come tonight to a difficult psalm. It is not a difficult one, as it were, to understand its meaning. It is a difficult psalm to wrestle with its circumstances. And we come and ask that you'll give us help and bless us as we consider this psalm and the prayer, the heart of the psalmist who renders it. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
These psalms of Asaph, as we've said, and to quote Spurgeon, often come in the minor key. And I don't think there's a psalm that can surpass this one at least with regard to the destruction, with regard to the circumstances that it surrounds. It is quite evident that the writer of the psalm is eyewitness to the destructions of Jerusalem. Commentators wrestle, but most are agreed. It is a psalm that must be from those, and again, the choir of Asaph, not just the personal Asaph from previous years, but these psalms collected under his name by his choir. There are among those that are eyewitnesses of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. You see the description, the vivid description of Jerusalem laid waste. These are found then in perplexity. They come to see what had been the Lord's heritage, the Lord's people, the Lord's house, in destruction in such a way that, well, it's the insult even of letting the bodies of the people remain unburied. But it's a psalm, as we've noted already, that is a psalm that closes remarkably with a promise of praise. It's a psalm that is a cry of doubt, or excuse me, a cry that is not from doubt. Doubt would be a natural response, perhaps, to those circumstances. But the psalmist isn't operating by nature. He's operating by grace. He's operating with the help of the Spirit. It's not a psalm of doubt, but to use the words of another, it's a psalm of faith in perplexity. You will recall that perplexity is a term that we've used often in recent days. Because if we pause in the quietness of some of our moments of life, perhaps with some new item of news, some new depth of perversion that is paraded in our land, we do become perplexed. Lord, what are you doing? You're allowing such things to go on. And of course, we haven't come to see the actual dangers to our persons and our property that the psalmist so vividly describes here. The psalm outlines somewhat easily. Spurgeon's outline was threefold. If you look at the opening four verses, there is a complaint that is poured out, and it is a vivid complaint indeed. You come from verse 5 to 12, the bulk of the psalm is a prayer. The psalmist is asking the Lord to intervene. He's asking the Lord to change the circumstances. He's even asking the Lord to avenge himself. I think it's significant, and I'll mention it here lest we fail to get it at the close of our own thoughts. But in verse 12, as you see the culmination of that prayer and that imprecation against the ungodly that have done this, when they ask to, for the Lord to render unto them sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, notice it doesn't say wherewith they have reproached us. The psalm is more concerned with the glory of God, with the recognition of the glory of God and with God's name in the world and even among the heathen. And so the prayer even those imprecations is wrapped up with the Lord's glory and 
his people only as they're connected to that. And then, of course, the last section, just the closing verse, is a promise of praise. And that is remarkable when you consider the subject matter of the psalm. The psalmist also, interestingly, calls the Lord a name that is somewhat unexpected. And you find it in verse 9, and elsewhere it's reflected in the psalm. But help us, he says, O God of our salvation. You can read the opening four verses where the complaint is contained and see the circumstances that are before the psalmist's eyes and you could almost say, O God of our destruction. Because God indeed has brought this. You look at the books of Moses and how vividly the Lord promised to do this very thing for their sins and their apostasies. You read the books of Kings and Chronicles and then you marvel that the Lord was so long-suffering to allow centuries to pass before he fulfilled those threatenings against his people. But I say there's faith here. Even in the darkest of days, as we read there in Isaiah 6, the Lord has a remnant. It may appear that the tree is dead, as it were, but there's life beneath the surface. There's a spring that will come. And here the psalmist, I say, for all his complaint and for all the imprecations and prayers that he brings, can render praise to a God that's worthy to be praised in such times. Many of you will take note, and if not, I'm sure perhaps you will on the way out of the building tonight, but the plaque that is right by our door, our entryway, is a text that is taken from this psalm. There's a unique part of our history I almost wanted to bring my notes from that. I still have them. How many of you that are gathered here tonight will remember? It was only 1987. You know, when I teach the students, I have to pause in class pretty often and think, how old were they when that happened? Were they even born when that happened? It's getting interesting. People are getting younger all the time. (laughs) But I took as my text for that opening Bible study, it was a Tuesday evening, I was going to take as my text the words of verse 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? I had been greatly impressed by some comments Dr. Cairns had made on that text. I was often greatly impressed by Dr. Cairns' sermons and repeated much of them along the way. Again, always giving credit where credit was due. No plagiarism in the pulpit, just healthy quotations. But yet in that evening, not merely in the prayer time, but in the message itself, the Lord moved us from verse 10 more toward verse 9. There have been a couple times in my ministry where the Lord has changed my mind changed my heart, and at one point changed my theology while I was in the pulpit, (laughs) wrestling with the Word. But verse 9 is, I think, a giant part of this prayer. I want to focus on those couple of verses this evening, but just to seek to bring the psalm together around them. When you see that refrain and what had So caught my attention and I chose it for a text. In verse 10 we see, Wherefore should the heathen say, 
Where is their God? You see, the rebellion of God's enemies, now they again are those that God has raised up as Pharaoh, as Nebuchadnezzar, for his own purposes, for the chastening of his people, but yet still guilty for the crimes that they commit and for their antagonism to the Lord and against his name and against his church. But there's a cry that goes forth from them, where's their God? There's an assumption that they make. There's a boldness that accompanies these ungodly ones. And they're emboldened because of, well, all the destructions that are outlined in verses 1 to 4. In their thinking, obviously their gods are winning because they have been able to destroy Jerusalem to burn down the temple of Israel's God and even carrying away the golden vessels of that temple. I think when you consider those vessels taken away and you look even into that season of Gentile dominance that, well, in many ways carries on as Luke describes the times of the Gentiles we live in still. But Belshazzar's impious feast, perhaps many of you will have as a page heading in your Bibles in Daniel. In my little list of sermon thoughts, I've got a thought from that chapter because Belshazzar calls his elders and his people together to have that impious feast as it is described there in the page heading. There are times when it's not enough for the ungodly merely to be ungodly, as it were. For them to have their their feast, their party, their orgy, their whatever. No, they must do it using the Lord's vessels. It's not enough merely to sin. They reach a point, and well, we'll come to consider something of that as we come to Romans chapter 1, the latter half of that chapter. They reach a point that their rebellion against God, it crystallizes. And God surrenders them to their own sin and their own ungodliness, and they're given over to a reprobate mind. And you see here, again, the heathen confessing this. There's an assumption underneath that it is being said that precedes and underlies the the psalmist's prayer. Why should they say it? And you think of the atrocities that are committed. In verse 2, the dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat under the fowls of heaven, the flesh of thy saints under the beasts of the earth. To be left without burial, as one has said, is the final form of humiliation. The mindset toward the Lord's people is they are of so little worth, they are of no account. There's no mourning. There's no proper observance of their life, of their personhood. There is beasts just left to be food for other beasts. Here's how far the enemies of God's people have gone. And yet the psalmist is careful 
as he recounts this tragedy, to say it's, it's your people, it's your kingdom, it's your temple. And he even speaks there about the reproach wherewith they've reproached thee. Understand that in the expressions of evil and ungodliness that we see reflected in the lost and in seasons where God sovereignly allows them to pursue their wicked desires to this degree and to this end. The real focus is not so much even on the church. The real antagonism is toward God Himself. It's just that the people of God are as close as the ungodly can get to God. And so it's there that they vent their wrath. When you think about this rebellion, this depth of wickedness, and you think of the circumstances now that the psalmist is recounting, you have to think of the preaching of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and his companions had been considered an out-of-touch relic by the inhabitants of Jerusalem for so many years prior to this destruction. Ah, the old preacher. What can he know? He's living in the past. He doesn't understand how things work. He doesn't understand why we've had to do this and that and the other. I wonder what the remnant looking at the dead bodies scattered in Jerusalem smoldering in ashes thought of Jeremiah's preaching then. But again, it's not the vindication of Jeremiah that the psalmist has in view. It's a prayer for forgiveness. It's a prayer for help. It's a prayer for the vindication of God's name. And while the enemy again, and you see all the atrocities they commit, are prominently figured in the psalm, the thing that that stands out almost all the more is the reproach of the Lord's own people. There's an emphasis here upon the remnant as the particular objects of scorn and mockery by their neighbors. We become derision to those that are round about us. A scorn, verse 4. I remember a sermon by one of our men years ago. I'm sure I've mentioned his perspective before. But I thought it interesting and it rings true. God's people are normally going to be a reproach in the world. The only thing that ever removes the reproach of God's people in a sin-cursed earth is revival. And it removes the reproach of God's people from, from two different directions. Because God's people can be a reproach from two different directions. When God's people are living righteously, when they're following the Lord in obedience in Christ's likeness and the pursuit of God's law, they're a reproach to the ungodly because the ungodly are rebuked by their lives. The ungodly are rebuked by their testimony. They don't appreciate the fact that a redeemed people are in their midst. 
They don't want that testimony to hold them back from pursuing their sins. And so God's people are a reproach to them. There's another occasion in which God's people are a reproach. And that's when the church is not living in godliness. When the church is living in hypocrisy and in sin. And then the heathen are ready to reproach the Lord's people, not for their righteousness, not for their Christ-likeness, but because they're, well, they're living just like they are. And so they rejoice to point out their hypocrisy. That's one of the many reasons underneath in our pursuit of faithful lives before the Lord and before the world. When a Christian stumbles, when a Christian brings reproach upon himself and upon the church and upon the name of Christ, the ungodly are happy to put a spotlight on that and all the better if it's a leader or a preacher. And it should be something that constantly motivates us, not wanting to bring shame upon the name of our Savior. But the point is, revival is the only way to, to have this reproach to cease. In the case of the season which the, in which the church is walking faithfully, Revival will consist in the ungodly being converted. And instead of reproaching the church, they join in with the church and they walk in newness of life. In the case of the season in which the church is in ungodliness itself, the revival must begin there. The ungodliness is confessed. The poor testimony, the hypocrisy is confessed. And the church walks in newness of life. And so we pray for revival in both cases. The psalmist here, and if you read the psalm as we have, is very mindful of the sins that have preceded this destruction. And yet he's mindful. Verse 8, Remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. And then those words help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Thy name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for Thy name's sake. Is that text that arrested my attention in our very opening service and prayer time. Again, I wanted to focus on that verse 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? I was just so taken in hearing Dr. Cairns speak of the implication of that verse. The heathen are saying this. And of course his point, and the one I was initially bringing and wanted to bring that night, was the word wherefore. Why? The fact that the heathen are saying it is a reality that can't be denied, but the underlying gospel truth, the underlying real reality is There's no reason for that to be said because God is in heaven. God is on the throne. And the fact that He's allowed the ungodly to destroy Jerusalem doesn't mean that He's powerless or that He doesn't exist. It shows all the more His sovereign control. It shows His jealousy for His own name. 
for God to allow these that take His name to be no different than those that deny His name, can He leave that unchecked? When I say I was taken with the words of verse 9, you can think of a church planter in an opening prayer meeting, and one of the underlying obvious necessities is that of help. I mean, here we are, between the whole lot of six of us or whatever, we've got about $8, so where are we going to put the building? But notice how it's phrased. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. How often do we pray that way? The flesh can come in and say, Lord, help me, and we can pray quite rightly for a particular need. If it's a financial need, if it's a need of health or strength through a particular weakness or sickness or trial, again, that's fine to pray for such tangible help that impacts us. But here, this this very large prayer in this very deep crisis is help us. Yes, we're the ones that need the help. But the result, the burden upon the heart is help us for the glory of your name. He's not asking here that necessarily the fact that there is scorn and derision be erased for their glory. They deserve that reputation. They deserve that punishment and that chastening. But how often we see through Scripture at different points in the history of the church that there's power in the prayer when our hearts are finally moved that it's for the glory of God that something needs to change. Not for our glory. And that phrase here, for the rebellion of God's enemies to be so evident in that day as it is in our own. For the reproach of God's people to be so evident in that day as it is in our own. But for the revelation of God's glory to be the burden of our hearts today as it was in that day. Any help we desire, receive, must be for the glory of God. That God would be known. That a faithful testimony would be rendered by the church. Not for the church's glory, but for the glory of God. And you know, and we've not very long ago taken a little review of the Book of Daniel. God didn't need a strong Israel. He didn't need a flourishing and glistening temple to let Nebuchadnezzar know who ruled. Nebuchadnezzar got a very, very vivid picture of Israel's God. More than one occasion. God's able to get glory to His name. But here's a a point where the church, through 
difficulty, through chastening, through days of smallness and being despised, is so moved for the glory of God that it prays for its own help. And then it prays in faith. Again, this isn't a psalm of doubt. It's a psalm of faith that's wrestling with perplexity, but it works through. And it understands that as God would move to answer its prayer, that it would issue in praise in the hearts and the lives and the testimony of those that have prayed it. So we thy people and the sheep of thy pasture will praise thy name forevermore. So here's a psalm, perplexity to be sure, a psalm uttered when the forces of evil were at their highest and the testimony of the church was at its lowest, but its God was unchanged. No change. Jehovah knows. I trust the Lord will help and encourage us with the words of yet another one of these weighty Psalms of Asaph. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight we have sung praises to a God who's worthy. We've read a psalm of a confession of the church's weakness and its sin, and the sad results in the cycles of history here. Lord, we feel ourselves to be in such a, a downward point in the progression of your people's testimony in the world. How many taunts are going forth? Where's your God? And Lord, even the size of your people, we ask that we might be among those that sigh and yet can pierce through the perplexity and by faith understand that you are on the throne still and that you will work it out for your own glory. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us as Jeremiah to cry out against the sins of your people. Help us to walk faithfully even in the midst of tragedy. Should such things befall us. And Lord, we pray that we confess, we pray it with a weak, a puny faith. But yet you're a God who can revive. In the midst of the years, as the prophet Habakkuk prayed, You can make yourself known in wrath. You can remember mercy. Lord, just don't let our perplexity overwhelm us. By Your Spirit, may faith in these hearts that You have redeemed and given life to, may we walk faithfully through whatever circumstances are brought our way. And may our prayer and our heart always be that the help you would render to us would not redound to our esteem in the eyes of men or the world, 
that you would help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your own name. Lord, prosper us as we go to our homes. Give us grace to walk according to your word, to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.